We've been in Louisville now three years. That's crazy. And one of my duties there is to do the welcome like Dan did. And so we've been there three years, and it's still my fear every single time that I've been doing this, every week for three years, to not say, good morning and welcome to Southern Hills Bible Church. <laughs> I have to cognitively say, what church? It's, it's not that one. So it just kind of lets you know where my heart is. It is a great privilege to be invited back and to partner with you over the weekend. What a joy, what a privilege. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for Christ, so thankful for his gospel that saves us, that reconciles us to you, that gives us inheritance and a hope, gives us the opportunity to be involved in the body of Christ where we're going to see each other for all of eternity. And so, Lord, we look forward to that. Use our time this morning to increase our affections for Christ to set our vision on things above, not on things of the earth. Lord, we ask that we would love what you love and hate what you hate, and we do need your help in this, so we ask it now. And we ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen. Our text this morning is the text that Paul read. That's Matthew 5, 13, 16. And there, Jesus has just finished the Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12, which act. Uh, basically like an introduction to this section of text that's called the Sermon on the Mount. And his aim here is to encourage the blessed, those who long for Christ's kingdom, to influence those around them toward the kingdom for the glory of God, despite the likelihood of persecution, or to influence the world for the better, which is to impact souls for Christ. And the blessed don't seek this glory for themselves, but they, think, but they seek it for the fathers. And so Jesus encourages the blessed to be who they are. When we look at verses 1 through 12, humble, meek, hungry for Christ, pure in heart, and zealous ministers of reconciliation. And the blessed, they alone are those who have the truth. They have the truth and they are on a mission for their king. They're not their own. They've been bought with a price. Nate Saint, the famous missionary pilot to Ecuador who gave his life for Christ and his kingdom, told of a time when the Lord brought to his attention that he wasn't living for Christ but for his own selfish desires. And upon that realization, he was ashamed. He wrote, my life wasn't my own. The Lord had called me to be a gospel missionary. This was the life I had thrown away deliberately. Remember, Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Followers of Christ are not their own. And they are necessarily then called to walk to the beat of a different drum. They're to be salt and light ambassadors to the glory of God. And so verse 13 of Matthew 5 says, you are the salt of the earth. And here we see, we simply have a declaration, Right? You are the salt of the earth. Notice that Jesus uses the third person during the Beatitudes, and then he switches to the second person here in verse 11. And then Jesus stays with the second person, but in our text, it's emphatic, which means he's emphasizing who they are. We might say, you yourselves. So he's trying to get across to his followers that they they really are truly the salt of the earth. 
phrase salt of the earth we know has been interpreted a variety of different ways throughout the years. I think the most popular explanation among conservative scholars and Bible teachers today seems to be that Jesus is highlighting that preserving nature of salt in relation to food. So John MacArthur says, no doubt its use as a preservative is what Jesus had mostly in view here. Another great expositor, D.A. Carson, says, regarding this verse, above all, salt was used as a preservative. Rubbed into meat, a little salt would slow decay. And so then the application flowing from that understanding is that disciples of Christ are to have this preserving influence on society just as salt has a preserving influence on meat. Believers then are to stem the tide of corruption in society. Now, I certainly believe that followers of Christ have this preserving influence on society, and they do stem the tide of corruption. They keep societies from being as wicked as they, as they already are. But I'm not convinced that's all that the text is saying, because if we read on, the text says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So the text, I think, qualifies for us that, that aspect or nature of salt that it's referring to, taste, right? not preservation. Taste, something that goes into your mouth that your tongue uh, senses. Luke 14.34, we see closely re- repeats that same teaching and says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So again, we see that attribute of salt highlighted, and it's, and it's the flavor that it produces, its taste. And so in Matthew and Luke, the focus, I think, is clearly flavor. Taste being the focus of both of those texts when it's referring to salt. Now, as we read through Matthew, we see Matthew often alludes to the Old Testament. And so let's just take a moment to see what we learn about salt from Old Testament witness that might apply here. In Leviticus 2.13 would be one text for us. Moses there is relaying the Lord's instruction to the Israelites regarding grain offerings. And this is what he says. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You should not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Okay, so here the text says salt was added to grain offerings to season them. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. Okay. Um, And this was part of the fragrant offering uh, to the Lord, and it was an integral part of their covenant with him. In Numbers 18, 19, another text we read, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So I think we need to ask the question, what does salt add to the sacrifices and what does it have to do with the covenant? In both of those texts in Leviticus and Numbers, it mentions the covenant. Well, in Leviticus, it said the offering was seasoned with salt. And that's the case throughout all the Old Testament, salt, seasoned sacrifices, and offerings. To season something means that you're making it better. You're making it taste better. The offerings were to have salt added to them, presumably, when we think about it in that way, so that they were as excellent as they possibly could be. Maybe we could say costly. We know in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was to cost the person offering the sacrifice something. And so I think that maybe it adds to the costliness of the sacrifice. So that maybe touches on the sacrifices, but in that Numbers text, we see the covenant emphasized. So Gordon Wenham, biblical scholar, comments on the Numbers passage, and he says that it could be talking about salt as a seasoning for food, which would point to a shared meal between the two parties of the covenant as symbolic of their friendship 
and the binding nature of their agreement. And so that might combine the two uh, elements there of the salt in the covenant and the seasoning. How does it all relate to our Matthew text? If at all, well, I mean, I've already given you a few perspectives of some uh, fairly reputable men, men I admire for their exegesis. Uh, but I think in order to do justice to the text, I think we have to maintain that it's talking about flavor or taste or, or seasoning, it, at least that aspect. And so in light of the Old Testament witnesses that we discussed and, and usage of salt to season grain offerings and covenantal sacrifices, I believe this points again to salt being something that would enhance the sacrifice or the covenantal sacrifice in some sort of way and made the sacrifice excellent. And uh, so perhaps the salt of the earth, that phrase can be compared to the salt covering a sacrifice. Uh, the salt was necessary in order to make the sacrifice over the covenant acceptable to the Lord. And so in a sense, disciples of Christ are to be about the work of preparing people to be acceptable sacrifices before the Lord. That is their mission. And also, uh, the salt became part of the sacrifice. If you think about it, salt goes on it, and then it gets burned as a sacrifice. And so maybe this is alluding to the persecution of the saints mentioned in verses 11 and 12. And now I wouldn't feel bad if, if you disagreed with me on that conclusion. It's a hard text, hard phrase to understand. And uh, like I said, people I respect have different views on that. But I think, though, we can definitively say that followers of Christ are to impact the earth positively. Now, the word earth there is talking about people walking on the earth, not the terrestrial ball itself. Followers of Christ are to make the earth, the people who inhabit the earth, better or maybe more theologically accurate, acceptable, and are to be willing to suffer for that purpose. And in light of the Beatitudes there in 1 through 12, I think this clearly means that there will be ambassadors of the king and his kingdom, which if they are peacemakers, and they are, would mean that they are to prepare the world to be living sacrifices and so necessarily confront people with Christ. They proclaim the gospel of the kingdom both with their words and their lives. And so it's as if Christ is saying, you yourselves... The blessed, true believers are to function in such a way as to make others living sacrifices acceptable to God, which in God's economy is to drastically improve souls. Have you ever been around someone who made you more like Jesus Christ? Just by being around them, being in their presence, spending some time with them, encouraged you in your love for Christ and in conforming to him? I think most of us, if we've been believers for any length of time, we'd say yes. I've had the benefit from being around uh, several godly men who gave me a, you know, a clear vision, a clear picture of what a godly father, what a godly husband and godly man uh, would look like. They made me better. They made me a better living sacrifice. Uh, one of those brothers is from the 1800s. His name is R.C. Chapman. Obviously, I've never met him, but uh, he has nonetheless had an influence on my life for the better, as he apparently had on many people who he came in contact with over the years in that day. Chapman opened his home to minister to missionaries on furlough or really to anyone else who needed sort of a spiritual retreat. And one such visitor was a missionary from China named J. Norman Case. Uh, listen to Case tell of his time at Chapman's home. He says, the whole ordering of the household had in view not only the comfort, but the general spiritual, mental, and physical well-being of the many who came there for rest. Love and reverence for the scriptures and subjection thereto formed the very atmosphere of the house. 
There too, the table talk was turned to spiritual ends as I have never to the same degree elsewhere known. An ordinary meal became an agape meal, more helpful than many a long meeting. It was an ideal home for a tired or discouraged worker or for a despondent or perplexed Christian. There one seemed naturally to be in that state of mind to hear the question and heed the exhortation to one of old. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. A stay there of days or weeks could not but deeply influence the whole aftercourse of a young Christian. See, R.C. Chapman made people better. He encouraged them towards righteousness. He encouraged them towards Christ. R.C. Chapman was salty. And according to our text, all believers to some degree are salty as well. All true believers to some degree are moving others to Christ. And so that is the declaration. You are the salt of the earth. Excel still more, right? Excel still more. But now comes encouragement in the form of a warning. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is a warning for disciples not to lose their functionality. And here's the question. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, I'm not a chemist, but I'm told that technically salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a stable compound, whatever that means. Salt is always salty. But the salt used in the ancient world was gathered from marshes and so forth, and so had impurities in it. In that case, it was possible for the deposit of minerals that they were calling salt to lose its flavor. But either way, this is really a rhetorical question, and the answer for us is provided. If salt were to lose its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet, used for making pass or whatever. Uh, the clear point, though, is that salt, if it has lost its function, if it could lose its function, is good for nothing. Again, at the end of the Beatitudes, if you look there in verses 11 and 12, uh, we learn that persecution is normal for followers of Jesus Christ. Those who are truly Christ's disciples should expect persecution, and we see that truth reiterated throughout various places in Scripture. And when a person, though, is persecuted on account of Christ, they should rejoice because it's evidence of their genuine faith. Because the heroes of the faith, the prophets, were also persecuted on account of righteousness, and so they are in good company. So right after those encouraging words, we then have this warning. I believe the text is essentially saying persecution will come and temptation, and the temptation is to conform. The temptation is, is, is going to be to keep the kingdom to oneself and, and kind of hide out until Christ returns. The temptation is going to be to withdraw from society or from those who might persecute you. The temptation is going to be to, to blend in with society and, and not rock the boat. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Fight that temptation. Society needs you to be God's people. Stay true to character. You are salt. Perform your function. Be the blessed. Influence everyone around you towards righteousness, towards Christ-likeness. Convict them by your righteous life. Convict them with the words of the gospel. Your function in society depends on your otherness. If salt were to lose its flavor, it would lose its purpose. That's really the point. 
If you stop being the blessed, if you stop being who you are, then you, you, you've lost your purpose. Your function depends on maintaining your character. And so looking at the description of the blessed in the Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12 again, uh, we would say continue to be poor in spirit. Don't forget your spiritual bankruptcy apart from the Messiah's work in you. Continue to grieve over your sin and the sin of the world and long for that day when sin is going to be no more. Maintain a humble heart, one that understands always how desperately you needed a Savior and you need a Savior today and you need a Savior in the future. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Never cease pursuing Jesus Christ and his word with a passion. Constantly remind yourself of the mercy that you have received and let that reality motivate you to be merciful to others. And so live a gospel-saturated life. You've been given a pure heart, so tenaciously fight to keep your heart free from defilement. Pursue holiness. Don't wallow in your sin. Make a clean break with that sin. Never lose your awe over the peace that Christ's blood has made between you and God. Love this peace and refuse to hide the means of this peace from others who desperately need to hear that message. So revel in your privileged status as members of the kingdom and rejoice when you're treated like one of the prophets. So don't shrink back in fear. Be who you are. And this is not talking about losing your salvation. The point is encouragement and exhortation. Uh, This is encouragement to boldly be the blessed. This is encouragement to embrace who you are in Jesus Christ and to live up to that noble identity. The assumption is that believers will embrace their opportunity for influence. You are the blessed, and the world needs the blessed. So don't sequester yourself to a monastery. Don't kind of hole up somewhere, barricade yourself in, and ride it out until the rapture. Do what you were meant to do. Bring flavor to the world. Influence all those around you toward godliness. Be the blessed. Dana and I have this phrase, the world needs more Dave and Donna's. Dave and Donna were this saintly elderly couple that ministered to us when we were stationed as newlyweds in Puerto Rico. Dana is a different person because of Donna's influence in her life. She's a stronger, sweeter follower of Jesus Christ because of Donna's holy life. And I regularly think of myself, you know, what would Dave do in this situation? How would he act? And I've seen him grow older and older, and now he's in his mid-80s, and I'm always thinking, how would he act when he's my age? Their righteous lives convicted us. What they were living for, what they were setting their affections on convicted us. You know, a few years back, I read a a book from a a famous pastor's new release. Actually, it was a book review. I didn't read the book, but I read a book review of his famous release. And I don't know much about this guy, really, other than he's a famous preacher speaker. He might be a pretty good guy one-on-one. I don't know. but, But he wrote this book on marriage. And then in this book, he gets quite graphic about what he considers to be permissible regarding the marriage bed. And he essentially... Uh, puts out his uh, his opinion that people need to know about our sexual culture and all the, the gory details in order to minister to the culture. No. Wrong. The world needs more Dave and Donna's. The world needs more people whose very lives are a walking conviction. That's what the world needs more of. The world doesn't need more cool and relevant Christian celebrity Christians. It needs more people who are extremely salty. The world needs the blessed to be what they were called to be, the salt of the earth.
But not only are you the blessed true believers, the salt of the earth, our text goes on and says, you are also the light of the world. So here we have another declaration, not wishful thinking, not, well, you ought to be this, but another declaration, you are the light of the world. Disciples are the salt of the earth. They're also the light of the world. Earlier on in Matthew 4.16, Jesus declared himself to be the light of Isaiah 9.2, which says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Jesus is the light. The light is the gospel of his kingdom. And the light in that context is also uh, the gospel light, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, all of that. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who follow him will have salvation. Darkness is associated with those who are not right with God. Light is associated with joy and with those who are truly God's people. Darkness, we see, is coupled with with sin. Light is coupled with righteousness. Darkness is ignorance. Light is understanding. Darkness is destruction. Light is reconstruction. Uh, Isaiah 42, 6 says of the Lord's servant, uh, the servant Messiah, I will, give as a, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The light that is dawned on the Gentiles is the long way to Messiah the one who is going to usher in the the return of the exiles, the one who's going to bring about true reconciliation between God and man, the one who's going to set the captives free, the one who commands the devil and he obeys, the one who will save his people from their sins, the one who will bring peace for all nations. That's what all this is about. The king and his kingdom are light. The light of Christ, the solution to mankind's biggest problem has finally dawned. The rays of his lovely grace have have filled up the valley, so to speak. The beams of his righteousness have have lit up hearts with joy, and Jesus is the light. Now, amazingly and wonderfully, so followers of Christ are also said to be the light of the world. Now, they're not those who, who win salvation for the world, but they are those who point to the source of that salvation for the world. They are those who have received the light themselves and so radiate light. They are like those who have kind of played around with radioactive material just a little bit too long and so they're all lit up. You know, they're all aglow. They are those who are righteous. They're no longer living in the darkness of sin. They are those who know the good news. They, 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 they know the solution to mankind's problems. They are those who are being conformed to the image of Christ and so they reflect that image in their life and it just pours out of them. And so the declaration is that followers of Christ are themselves the light of the world through and by their connection with Christ and the spirit living inside of them. Many of you have probably heard of George Mueller, the man from England who built several orphanages in the 1800s on essentially nothing but prayer. But you might not know that George Mueller's faith was fanned into flame by a few bright lights. Uh, Mueller was in his early 20s, just kind of flailing around about a bit in a spiritual life, and then he met Henry Craik and the believers in Bristol. Uh, Mueller writes of this meeting, to me it was like a new conversion. Now I heard a clear gospel that I could understand. The Bible became a new book to me. The brotherly love shown was such as I had never seen before. The godly and simple lives of even wealthy people who had moved in the highest society was such as to carry one back to the days of the apostles, and I felt this was indeed Christianity of a high type. 
see these folks in Bristol were the light of the world. And Mueller was like one of those glow-in-the-dark stars that when you hide it, to, hide it, held it to a, you know, a bright lamp, and the closer you get to it and the longer it's exposed, the longer and the brighter that it shines. Our text goes on, and, and we see another series of encouragement. Jesus says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. See, cities in the ancient days were, were built of white limestone, and so uh, a city set on a hill would be quite a brilliant light couldn't be hidden. But also with Matthew's frequent Old Testament uh, references, especially with Isaiah, it's possible that Christ is referring to Isaiah 2.2, where it is prophesied, it shall come to pass in the latter days, which I believe the days we are living in, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Then in verse 5, of that same passage, we read, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so I think Jesus is probably referring to this passage where he has it in mind. He is the light and all nations will run to him. The light can't be hidden, wasn't meant to be hidden, but to attract the world. And we see this today as we see people from all nations flocking to the one true Messiah of Mount Zion. And so cities on hills cannot be hidden and they weren't meant to be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. So just as a city on a hill is not trying to hide, nor would someone light a lamp and put it under a basket, that would defeat the purpose uh, for why the lamp was lit in the first place. Uh, it's not hidden, but placed on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The purpose of lighting the lamp was to give light to the entire house. It was to be of use to others. It would make no sense to light the lamp and then hide it. That, that would be a, a waste. Lamps were intended to light up the house. Can you imagine you know, going through your, your house at, you know, when it's getting close to dark and then covering all the, the lamp fixtures with black crepe paper? And then turning the lights on. Well, we would understand that's just cognitively ridiculous. Uh, the lights are there for a purpose, to, to light things up so that, so that you can see. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Again, Jesus just told us uh, those who would follow him, uh, he just told them that they should expect persecution and that they should rejoice when it comes because they're in good company, just like the prophets. They are truly God's people. And God's people throughout history have generally not been treated very well. What we've experienced in our country the last couple hundred years up until now has kind of been an anomaly. Throughout history, the history of the saints, they've been beaten, abused, reviled, crucified, ridiculed, tortured, accused, slandered, on and on and on. And so the temptation for the blessed, as we have said, might be to hide out. The temptation might be not to let anyone know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The temptation might be to blend as, in as, as much as possible in order to avoid persecution. But Jesus says, don't do that. That would be like lighting a lamp and hiding it. It'd be ridiculous. You are the blessed for a reason. So just as lamps are intended to bring light to a house in the same way, so let your light shine before others. Uh, we said earlier that the light was the gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom. We said that the light had dawned with the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom, and that kingdom is characterized by righteousness, by light. And so you followers of Christ, because your connection to Christ, that you're in Christ, the blessed are the light. So spread this light to others. Be who you are. Be the blessed. And so... 
salt losing its saltiness and light not shining, both of those, that situation is really hypothetical because those who are genuine believers, they will shine. They might be tempted not to shine. And so we have this encouragement, this exhortation, but they will shine. Wayne Grudem writes, though we do not find ourselves surrounded by a visible light, there is brightness, a splendor, or a beauty about the manner of life of a person who deeply loves God, and it is often evident to those around such a person. So why shine? Verse 16 goes on to say, so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved us, sent his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But love was not only God's purpose in salvation. There was a greater purpose, and that greater purpose was his glory. God is always about his own glory. Isaiah 43, 6 says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Yahweh is always about his own glory. Philippians 2, we learn of Christ's wonderful humility displayed in taking on human flesh and becoming obedient at the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, verse 9 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of this was done to the glory of God the Father. It's not about us. Those who long for the king and those who long for his kingdom, they get this, they understand this, that it's not about them, but about the glory of the Father. Everything God does is for his own glory. And this is not some egotistical maneuver on on God's part. It's right, it's true. You know, when we see a fine painting, we naturally want to find out who painted it. So we can give the painter the proper praise. If I'm looking at at a painting and a person is standing there, and I come up to them, and I, and I start kind of saying, oh, man, you know, you did such a good job doing that, and, and they're not the painter, what are they going to do? They're going to say, oh, I'm not the painter. I'm just, I'm just selling it or pointing it out, or I'm not the painter. I'm just, I'm just a fellow admirer as, as well as you. And, and we would get that. We would totally understand. God can't help but receive glory and demand glory because he is the painter. It's just fact. Because he is glorious, that's who he is. It's the truth. He can't deny who he is. That would be tragic. It's right for him to receive all praise and glory. If the artist is excellent, no one has a problem giving the artist the proper accolades. And so it is with God. He alone is eternally worthy of glory. It simply is who he is. It's fact. And so persecution will come, and the temptation is going to be to shrink back in fear. Don't. Society needs you to shine light before others, but more than that, God saved you. He made you the blessed so you could bring him glory in this way. What a privilege. 
When you're humbled by the gospel, and so are humbled, God receives glory. When you hunger and thirst for him and, and, and you're red hot in your zeal for him and so you set others on fire when they get a little bit too close to you, God receives glory. When you mourn over the sin in your life and in the sin in the world around you and you, so you long for the day when, when you'll no longer sin against your Lord and you long for that day when you see Christ face to face and sin is gonna be something of the past, God receives glory. When you're given a pure heart and so you battle sin in your own life tenaciously, when you live such a holy life that others can't help but notice, God receives glory. When you love the king of peace and, and can't help but spread the good news of your king, the one you love, your master, your savior, your friend, God receives glory. And when you're persecuted for righteousness, when you're reviled because of who you are, the blessed, and you respond with joy because you were living for a heavenly country, God receives glory. When George Mueller and R.C. Chapman and Dave and Donna influence people for Christ, God receives glory. And so both of those images, the salt and the light, are meant to encourage and to exhort true believers not to shrink back from the threat of persecution. You were saved for a purpose, the glory of God. Be salt, be light to his glory. The salt's not salty on its own, nor does the light appear from nowhere. They both point to a source, our Heavenly Father. When he's revealed in our lives, he receives uh, the praise of men. Now, this is talking about salvation and the fruit of salvation. When, when you are the blessed, you're gonna exhibit the character of the blessed and you're gonna influence others. So don't hide who you are. This isn't a call to broadcast your good works. This is encouragement not to shrink back in fear, but to be bold ambassadors for the king and for his kingdom. The king wants the glory due his name and will receive the glory due his name, but he's given the blessed this enormous privilege to be his ambassadors and to be glorified in and through us. Isn't that amazing? So when you live out the life of the blessed, this brings God glory and it's where your joy is located. Men are gonna see your good works and they're gonna praise your Father who is in heaven. Uh, we're to expect persecution, but it's not all persecution. Some are gonna see you living this otherworldly life and they're gonna be puzzled, confused. What are you doing? Others are gonna see you living an otherworldly life and persecute you, make fun of you, slander you. But some are gonna see you living an otherworldly life and praise your heavenly Father now. And all men are gonna praise your heavenly Father when Christ returns. And so it's for this purpose that you were saved. This is huge. Many other religions encourage good works, but not for the motivation of God's glory. Most religions uh, encourage good works so that you can earn your way to heaven or so that you can move up the heavenly status ladder, something like that. Uh, Mormons, for example, perform good works so that they might one day God, become gods of their own planet, right? Their own glory. Jehovah Witnesses perform good works so that they might enter paradise. Health, wealth, and Health, wealth, and prosperity adherents perform good works so that they might receive blessings in this life and get their best life now. All false religions have some sort of kickback for good works. But God so loved you that he saved you and has given you the privilege of bringing him glory. The blessed don't want to receive praise. They want Christ to receive praise. They want the painter who painted the beautiful picture to receive praise. That's why it's so unchristian. We see it throughout scripture to boast or brag in anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amazing. God's glory, our motivation. 
when we love the king and we love his kingdom, we're gonna be proud of our citizenship. But we're gonna be even prouder of the one who bought that citizenship with his blood. He's gonna be the one that we wanna brag about naturally and in increasing measure. And so the blessed are those who, who can't help but direct all praise to him. They can't help but be light and salt. He is worthy to receive glory. And so this is why it doesn't make sense to conform to the world or run away and hide. The blessed want the world to notice the difference. And so praise their heavenly father. Our, our purpose on life isn't to be as comfortable as we can possibly be in this life. That's not our purpose. And so we're to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We want the world to notice the difference. And so praise our heavenly father. And so the blessed seek to be like Christ. If we blend in with the world, if we hold ourselves up in monasteries, wait for the rapture, then we're good for nothing. We gotta be thrown out and used for making paths. If you do that, this text is saying, you're not the blessed, but you are the blessed. You are the salt. You are the light, not the world. And so you're to influence the world around you, not the world on you. As Romans 12, two says, don't be conformed to this world. So the exhortation is to pursue holiness, pursue otherworldliness, and be radical about it. Be a fanatic to the glory of God. You know, what would happen if all your best intentions to honor the Lord Jesus Christ that you actually uh, proved good on? What would happen if you got up at 5 a.m. to memorize scripture? What would happen if you lived up to your, all your fanatical dreams for Christ? What would happen if you formed calluses on your knees from your constant prayers for the souls of men? Uh, what would happen if you streamlined your finances in order to give your extra to those ministering the gospel to Muslims? What would happen if you acted on all your good intentions and pursued holiness with zeal and passion? What would happen if you love people the way that you envision that you ought to love people in the name of Jesus Christ? What would happen if you shared Christ with the boldness that you so long to do? Well, I tell you what would happen. You would influence people for eternity. And you would be accused, along with the disciples in the book of Acts, of turning the world upside down. But none of this is ever going to happen so long as we allow the world to influence us and cause us to respond in fear. And so perhaps we could say that to the degree the world and its philosophies influence us is the degree to which we are salt and light. We, the blessed, we are the salt and light of the world. And for over... 2,000 years, Christ has been shining his light through faithful followers. And so I hope that this passage is an encouragement for us to press on, not shrink back in fear, particularly in, with all the current events going on that I don't need to go in detail. I know you're up on them. Uh, I hope this passage encourages us to influence others to Christ and to be the salt and light of the world. And I hope this passage also encourages us to revel in the high privilege that we have to bring God glory. And I hope that we know that this is where our joy lies. Our joy doesn't lie in peace and comfort. It doesn't lie in making this life as comfortable as it can be until Christ returns. And so go, be salt, be light, and excel still more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ and the wonderful salvation he bought for us with his own blood. Increase our love and devotion to him. And Lord, our desire is that 
we would be salt and light to the world. And so, Lord, I pray for the saints here, the saints in Louisville, that we would be faithful to our purpose. Strengthen us. We need your help in this. We need your spirit to produce boldness in us and wisdom and perseverance. We need all these things. We can't do it alone. And so, Lord, we are so thankful that you haven't left us alone. And we're also thankful that it's not our performance in being the salt and light of the world that saves us, but Christ, who did this perfectly. But he is our savior. He is our example. He is the one that we look up to. And Lord, our greatest desire is to be like him. So help us in this, to your glory and our joy, amen.